This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Last Stop, where I detail crimes that happened on public transportation. This time we travel to Japan to learn about a terrorist attack on Tokyo's subway system. Tokyo Subway is the busiest underground transportation system in the world. With over 400 miles of tracks, it serves over 9 million passengers each day. On March 20, 1995, five men boarded five separate train cars in a planned attack that would employ one of the deadliest forms of chemical weapons, sarin gas. Why they did it, and on whose orders, makes this a truly bizarre case. This is Chapter 3 of Last Stop, the Tokyo Subway Attack. March 20th, 1995. Five men entered the rush hour commute on Tokyo's underground subway system, the Metro. It was 7.45 a.m. Separately, they boarded five different trains on three different lines. They had precisely timed the trains and knew that the three lines would intersect through the Kasumagaseki station at 8.15 a.m. This particular station was located near the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department and the center of the Japanese government. The men were all members of a cult group called Aum Shinrikyo, or Aum Supreme Truth. The Aum members believed that Armageddon and the end of the world was near. Their plan was to kick off World War III and hasten the end of days. Afterwards, only they, the enlightened ones, would survive to rule the world. To hasten this war, they planned to release sarin gas, an extremely powerful and deadly nerve agent, into the subway. After the gas was released, it would continue to spread as the trains converged on the government center, killing citizens, police officers, and government officials. They believed that the United States would be blamed for the attack and a war to end all wars would commence. As insane as this plot seems at face value, these men were not simply madmen or unhinged murderers, which they certainly were. But beyond that, they were also well-educated and respected scientists, doctors, and engineers. 37-year-old Yasuyo Hayashi was the first aboard the subway. Hayashi was an electrical engineer. He was the only one of the five men to have a criminal record. He had been cited for drug use. He began taking drugs after immersing himself in the supernatural, which in turn led him to Ohm. Even before the subway plot, he had been involved in several criminal and murderous missions for the cult. He would later be given the moniker Killer Hayashi by the media. Hayashi boarded a train on the Hibaya line. After it reached its first stop, Hayashi reached for his package. All five men carried backpacks that contained two to three plastic bags wrapped in newspaper. Inside each bag was a chemical solution, 30% of which was the nerve agent sarin. Sarin is a colorless, odorless liquid, 28 times more deadly than cyanide. It can easily be turned into a gas, and as it dissipates and is inhaled, it attacks the nervous system as it travels through the bloodstream. Sarin is lethal even in low doses. It is classified as a weapon of mass destruction. Those who come in contact with the liquid or gas form of sarin will begin to choke, suffocate, and may experience convulsions. It can also cause blindness. Death comes quickly and is usually the result of asphyxia 
due to paralysis of the lung muscles. The chemical can continue to be released from a person's clothing for up to 30 minutes after they come into contact with it. The five men also carried a cheap umbrella with a metal tip that had been sharpened into a point. Hayashi was also the only attacker to have been given three packages filled with the sarin agent. All the others had two. As the train began to approach the next station, he placed the newspaper-wrapped bags on the floor at his feet. Using the tip of the umbrella, he made several punctures into the plastic bags, and the nerve gas began to seep out. He then quickly left the car at the next station. At the other end of the same line, Toru Toyota, 27, boarded the train and took a seat by the door. Toyota had been a graduate student in particle physics at Tokyo University. He'd left college to join Ohm. Toyota was fidgety as he sat on the train. He was noticed by some of the passengers as he placed his two packages on the floor. They saw him puncture the strange newspaper-wrapped parcels with his umbrella before darting off the car. As he nervously walked off the platform, he couldn't help himself and glanced up, looking straight into a video surveillance camera that clearly captured him leaving the station at 8.01 a.m. Kenichi Hiroshi, age 30, was a graduate of the prestigious Wadea University. He had graduated at the top of his class, studying applied physics before joining the cult. Hiroshi boarded a car on the Maranucci line. The train was crowded with people packed shoulder to shoulder. As his stop neared, he began to panic. He was crushed between passengers, and there wasn't enough room for him to extricate his packages from his backpack and puncture them with his umbrella. As he finally managed to pull out his packages from the backpack, the two newspaper-wrapped bags tumbled to the floor of the train. Truly panicked now, he nudged them under a seat with his foot and was just able to poke a quick hole in them with the umbrella before he rushed off the train. The fourth attacker was at the other end of the same line. Masato Yokoyama, a 27-year-old electronics engineer, placed his two bags on the floor and poked them with the umbrella. Only one of the two bags was actually punctured. Dr. Aikuyo Hayashi, age 48, was a cardiovascular surgeon who graduated from a Japanese medical university before completing his training in the United States. He was a respected doctor in Japan before joining the cult. For Ohm, he'd carried out cruel medical experiments and had participated in drugging members and worse. He would come to be known as the Joseph Mengele of Japan. Dr. Hayashi was the only one of the five men that wore a mask onto the subway train. However, this was a common practice in Japanese subways in its congested city streets, where people came in close contact to one another. He did not stand out among the commuters that morning. Dr. Hayashi would later say he had not wanted to take part in the subway attack, but felt he could not refuse. While waiting to board the train car, he saw a young woman behind him in line and silently warned her not to board the car. He knew if she did so, she would soon be dead. He felt remorse and hesitated. But in the end, he carried out his orders, puncturing his two bags three stops from Kasuma Gaseki Station. By 8.10 a.m., all five men had emerged from the subway and had been picked up by drivers. They now made their way to their hideout, while horror unfolded in the subway cars and stations below ground. As the liquid began to seep from the packages, people leaving the packed cars stepped in. As they walked on the platforms and onto other cars, the deadly chemicals were spread further, even before the sarin began to evaporate. As it did, those who breathed the deadly fumes 
begin to first feel burning and tearing of the eyes. They then begin to cough and choke. Sarin gas is odorless, but the compound made by Om's chemist wasn't pure, so it gave off a stench. Some would say it smelled like burning rubber. But since it was invisible, no one could determine from where the smell originated. Within moments, a true-life horror movie began underground. People trapped on cars with the leaking packages became nauseous, choking and vomiting almost immediately. As the doors opened for the next stop, people staggered out, desperate for air. They were suffocating. Some collapsed onto the ground and began convulsing. Many of the affected experienced extreme burning of the eyes and nose, and their vision blurred. Some described it as seeing fireworks behind their eyes. They were being blinded by the poison gas. Dozens of people were collapsing on the platforms and in the cars, some bleeding from their noses and mouths. But Japan's metro trains are extremely efficient, running automatically like clockwork. The doors closed at the station and continued on, spreading the deadly nerve agent along miles more of subway tracks. At each station, more people emerged, coughing, choking, and collapsing, their bodies jerking in spasms. The emergency alarms in the cars were pushed, but no one knew what was happening. Some were rushed to waiting ambulances as conflicting information was made over the metro's public announcement system. It was announced that an explosion had occurred on one of the lines. Others announced a gas leak, which was closer to the truth, but not the whole story. The station started being evacuated. However, any passenger who'd come in contact with sarin on their shoes or clothes were transporting the poison even further, to other cars, other subway lines, onto public streets, and into buildings. On the streets, people collapsed, gasping for breath. Ambulances arrived to cart off hundreds of people. The hospital emergency rooms would be inundated with the sick and dying, and there was still no definitive answer as to what was causing so many to be struck down so violently. When the Hybea line train reached Kasumagaseki Station just two minutes behind schedule, passengers were asked to leave the station quickly, and train service was halted. The station master entered the car and picked up the package with the dripping liquid. He wrapped it in newspaper and deposited it into a plastic bag. He would become deathly ill soon after, but would survive. Another station master in Chayota would also pick up one of the sarin-containing packages. He moved it to the station office after trying to clean up the spilled liquid from the floor of the train with newspapers. He called his superior to report the package. A short time later, when the superior arrived, he would find the station master and another employee unconscious on the floor of the station office. They would both soon be dead. The bags of sarin that Kenichi Hiroshi had left on the Marinucha line would not be discovered for almost an hour and a half. The train it was in would make three more loops past the city center, killing two passengers and injuring hundreds more. Hundreds continued to flood into more than 30 hospitals and emergency rooms. A terrorist attack was now suspected, and subway stations were closed, and trains halted across Tokyo. Finally, at 10.30 a.m., two and a half hours after people began collapsing and dying, a military doctor finally diagnosed what was causing it. Hundreds had been exposed to sarin, a deadly nerve gas invented by Nazi chemical weapons engineers. They had begun to mass-produce it for wartime use, when the war ended thwarting them. Twelve people died as a result of the sarin attack on Tokyo subway. As horrible as the attack was, it was also a miracle that many more weren't killed. Over 1,100 people were injured, ranging from permanent vision problems 
to compromised lungs and other serious medical issues. Scores of others suffered from the aftereffects of anxiety and post-traumatic stress. While now authorities knew what had caused the terrible events that Monday morning in March, the next job was to determine who could be responsible for such an evil act. While the OM leaders were poised to point the finger at America, once the authorities became aware of the chemical attack, they almost immediately knew who their prime suspect was, the OM Shinrikyo cult, and more specifically, its leader, Shoko Asahara. Shoko Asahara, the founder and leader of Om Shinrikyo, was born Chiyuzo Matsumoto on March 2, 1955, in Japan's Kumamoto Prefecture. He was the fourth son of a tatami mat weaver. He was born blind in his left eye and partially sighted in his right. Growing up in his village, he was an easy target for bullies due to his vision problems. But when he was enrolled in a boarding school for the blind, he soon discovered that he had an upper hand. Unlike most of his classmates, he was not completely blind. This advantage turned him into a bully himself. He would make the other children kowtow to him. He enjoyed the power he now wielded and even used physical violence to control others. Chizuo, however, also wanted an official position of power. He ran several times, unsuccessfully, for president of his class, losing in grade school and high school elections. When he once asked a classmate why he never won, he was told that the other students were afraid of him. Chizuo would act out violently and aggressively with students and teachers alike when he didn't get his way. He threatened to burn down his dorm and also to shoot a teacher. No one doubted that he meant what he said. Chizuo was a bright student, but used his intelligence to con and manipulate those around him. Having grown up poor, he now set his sights on scamming his fellow classmates out of as much money as possible. He often spoke of his plans to become wealthy. By the time he'd left school, he'd been able to sock away almost $30,000 through his financial scams, scholarship money, and the disability payments he received. He still sought after a career in politics. The two tracks in Chizuo's brain seemed to be money and power. He felt his best shot at networking with future leaders was by attending prestigious Tokyo University. But he was frustrated once again when he failed the entrance exam. Soon after, he was arrested for the first time when he became enraged at a co-worker and viciously assaulted him. But apparently, he was not without charm. He met and married a pretty co-ed named Tomoko in 1978. They would have six children. Together, they opened an acupuncture clinic. But once the Matsumoto acupuncture clinic was established, Chizuo returned to his old financial scams. As well as providing acupuncture and teaching yoga, he offered herbal cures, including one labeled Almighty Medicine that was nothing more than citrus peel soaked in an alcohol solution. The treatments he provided at his clinic could run into the thousands of dollars for just one course. He began wearing a white doctor's coat at his clinic, presenting himself as a trained health professional, which he was not. But someone must have reported his dubious healing claims because he was arrested in 1982 for fraud. He was fined $1,000, which would have been chump change to Chizuo by that time. He'd scammed well over $200,000 by then, meeting with wealthy older patients at five-star hotels. He'd promised cures for whatever health ailments they suffered from, for which he charged tens of thousands of dollars, 
for a few weeks of his specialized treatments. He then began offering more supernatural services to those seeking help and answers. He began providing psychic services like fortune-telling and reading auras. He also began to dabble in the spiritual, although he had never before shown much interest in spiritual practices. Japan has an interesting religious history that I will quickly outline for you. You'll see where I'm going with this in a minute. Buddhism and Shinto religions were practiced in Japan for centuries side by side, without any conflict. Then in 1868, imperial restoration was declared, and the new constitution made the emperor head of state and gave him rights of sovereignty. He was also the head of the state's Shinto religion, and considered to be a living god. But after Japan was defeated in World War II, state Shinto was disbanded by the U.S. authorities in occupied Japan, and the Shinto directive was enacted, separating church and state. In response, dozens of new religions sprang up to meet the needs of a population that was searching for spiritual fulfillment. By the 1970s, with the economy booming, a second spiritual awakening had begun among the Japanese. In response, new religions, both legitimate and exploitive, emerged. It was into this environment that Chizuo Matsumoto began his own search for enlightenment. He first began to immerse himself in the teachings of a Buddhist sect called Agonshu. It claimed to offer its followers healing psychic powers. He began to study their teachings and follow their rigorous meditation practices. But before long, he was dissatisfied with the group. So instead, at the age of 29, he began his own religion. He first named it Om Inc. Om, of course, is a Buddhist mantra or chant that is considered a sacred sound. It is also a sacred symbol. Besides Buddhism, the Om symbol is also a spiritual icon in Hinduism, Jainism, Sikhism, and a handful of other religious sects. Om Inc. was launched in 1984 as a yoga studio. Chizuo also had a side business, of course, this time selling so-called health drinks. But he also continued to pursue his own spiritual journey. Whether he was actually a believer or was simply doing research to form his own cult is debatable. He traveled to the Himalayas, where according to his later writings, he was on a quest for spiritual enlightenment. Within months, he returned, saying he'd received a message from God. He had been chosen to lead God's army, he said. In addition, the disembodied voice told him, Armageddon will come at the end of this century. Only a merciful godly race will survive. The leader of this race will emerge in Japan. He, of course, would be that leader. With this divine mandate, Chizuo Matsumoto adopted a new identity. Now claiming to be a guru, he renamed himself Shoko Asahara. Now he just needed to form his army. Shoko Asahara's first order of business was to legitimize his claim to be a holy man. With this in mind, he traveled to the city of Dharmasala, located in northern India. He was there to meet and receive a blessing from Tibetan Buddhism's most revered spiritual teacher, the 14th Dalai Lama. Asahara had begun advertising his new brand of religion in publications like Twilight Zone magazine. He claimed to be able to levitate and even ran a photo in the magazine where he appeared to be suspended in midair. Of course, it was a trick. A well-timed snapshot was taken of him as he used his thigh muscles to push himself off the ground. The second after the photo was taken, he fell back to the earth with a thud. But, he said, 
His time being able to suspend himself was growing as he continued his spiritual practices. He promised new converts that they could grow in their spiritual abilities as well. New followers began to flock to his yoga studio to learn from the guru. It was the right combination of spiritual and supernatural claims that drew many younger followers to Om Inc., which Asahara now retitled the Om Association of Mountain Wizards. Many young educated Japanese men had spent their lives following the rigid rules of parents, school, and societal expectations. They overwhelmingly studied math, the sciences, and business. Around intense work and study schedules, they would fit in solitary recreational activities like science fiction and fantasy novels and comics, and later, video games. In these games, they could play the dashing hero who violently vanquishes the enemy and saves the day, a role most could never see themselves play in reality. Like many young people or those who had the time to find themselves, some were searching for fulfillment beyond work and family. Spirituality became one way to find meaning in life. Asahara was always adept at finding out what people needed the most and then using it to his advantage. To meet the needs of his Japanese followers at that time, he offered a blend of spirituality, science fiction, the supernatural, and offered followers a place where they were treated as special and important. He would tell them that they had been specifically chosen by God as he himself had been. It was an intoxicating combination for those who were searching for a higher purpose or calling. And what Asahara was laying out for them was nothing less than surviving Armageddon and becoming world leaders. The end, he prophesied, was near. When Asahara returned from his visit to the Dalai Lama, he told his followers that the holy man himself had given him special orders. Buddhism in Japan was being corrupted, and the Japanese were no longer learning the essential truths of its teaching. The Dalai Lama told him that Buddhism would not survive in Japan unless Asahara returned and spread the true teaching to his followers. He knew he was the one to take on this assignment, he claimed the Dalai Lama told him, because he had, quote, the mind of a Buddha. He couldn't wait to share the special mandate with his followers. However, the Dalai Lama would later remember the meeting differently. Asahara was no different from the many other self-described gurus that came before him every year. Only one thing stood out to him about this man in particular. Asahara had seemed more interested in learning how to go about building his religious organization than about spiritual practices. Asahara made more claims to his followers. He not only had the ability to levitate, but also to pass through walls, read others' thoughts, have X-ray vision, and hear directly from God. He also claimed to have lived many past lives, and in all of them, he had been an important figure. In one life, he claimed to be an Egyptian architect that helped design the pyramids. He soon began charging exorbitant fees for special courses and rituals he would perform for his followers. These rituals, such as chanting with the guru or receiving a powerful healing touch, could cost hundreds of dollars. Asahara once again renamed his school and now structured it as a business-slash-school-slash-religious organization. It was no longer Om Inc. or the Om Association of Mountain Wizards, but Om Supreme Truth. It now offered more spiritual practices rather than psychic services. Followers paid a la carte for its courses, products, and services, from $40 for a short course to almost $10,000 for a ritual called the Blood Initiation. 
During the blood initiation, Asahara, wearing special robes, would sit in a room. Participants in the ritual were told that a doctor and nurse, who were on staff, had drawn the guru's blood. Small glasses were brought in, one for each follower. Inside were a few ounces of blood. They were told to drink it. It was the guru's blood, and this initiation ritual would bestow upon those who partook of it special and magical powers. Asahara had now transformed himself from a spiritual teacher to a magical and godlike being who was to be revered as Om's supreme leader. Followers who could not afford the thousands of dollars required to take part in the blood initiation could pay somewhat less to drink tea that had been boiled with clippings of his hair. They could also purchase some of his beard clippings at only $375 per half inch to take home and make their own tea with, I'm guessing. He even sold his used bath water for $800 per quart. It was labeled Miracle Pond. That's enough of that. I'm feeling nauseated. Asahara's teachings were a hodgepodge of beliefs and practices from Buddhism, Hinduism, yogic practices, mysticism, and New Age humanism. Added to all of this was a dash of apocalyptic Christianity, Book of Revelation style, and the apocalyptic prophecies of Nostradamus to round out the program. In 1987, Asahara first shared with his followers his predictions for the coming end of days. There would be a nuclear war that would occur between 1999 and 2003. This would be started as a result of trade friction between the U.S. and other countries. The economy would plummet, and a police state would be forced upon them as Japan descended into chaos. Russia, China, the United States, and Europe would collapse, and nuclear war would result. The prophetic vision he'd received was that the world would end in a nuclear holocaust, but there was hope. If every country had a branch of Om Supreme Truth, run by an enlightened one, then World War III could be avoided. He guaranteed this, but he needed disciples that he would train to go into the world and spread the truth of Om. There was only 15 years until the end of the world, so there was no time to waste. Followers were now mandated to do their part to save the world by learning Asahara's teachings and spreading them to others. They were encouraged to purchase his tapes, books, and courses and bring in new converts to do the same. Those with more money were offered pricier courses, seminars, and rituals, which, when completed, gave them a higher standing of importance in Ohm. By 1987, Ohm had over 1,500 members in Japan. That same year, a branch of Ohm was established in New York City as Ohm USA. The following year, the group members in Asahara's profits had multiplied to the extent that he was able to move the cult's headquarters to a facility he'd had built near Mount Fuji. There he began to enact new member requirements and exert more control over his followers. Members were to be completely loyal to Shoko Asahara alone. They were to cut ties with any family members who were not also followers of Ohm. They were also not to be tied emotionally or even physically to their own children. Children were taken away to be cared for, I'll use that term loosely, by other members in another part of the facility. They were mostly neglected and left to their own devices without their parents around. The parents were to spend their days and nights studying Asahara's teachings, listening to him preach, and working for Om. If this all sounds somewhat familiar, you may have heard similar stories come out of other cult-like organizations, including reports from ex-Scientologists. At least, this is what came to mind for me.
Next came the financial exploitation of members. Those who rose to the rank of monks or nuns in Ohm were required to declare everything they owned and provide bank account numbers and access codes to the organization. Ohm's profits began to rise exponentially as its wealthier members turned over retirement pensions and real estate holdings. Asahara filed for religious status to receive government tax breaks in 1989. By 1990, he'd amassed over 5,000 members and more than 3 million in assets. He began purchasing real estate under Shell Corporation names in 1991. He also began exerting mind control over his followers using several techniques. Those who now gave up everything, homes, jobs, and family, to reside at the Mount Fuji Ohm community were given very little to eat and were allowed to sleep only a couple of hours per night. The teachings of Shoko Asahara were on a non-stop loop in the ears of the members. They were required to attend seminars, listen to tapes, and even have Asahara's voice piped into the rooms they worked and resided in. Asahara also introduced mind-altering drugs to his followers. Introduced as part of Ohm initiation rites, Asahara first had sodium thiopental, a barbiturate, administered to members. Sometimes called truth serum, it has sedative properties that can induce a trance-like state. Later, he would have Ohm chemists mass-produce hallucinogens, methamphetamine, PCP, and LSD. The drugs were either slipped into food or drinks during rituals, or members were encouraged to take them in order to experience mystical spiritual encounters. One result of the type of religious mysticism that Ohm was offering was that younger people were drawn to it. During that time, Japan's age of majority wasn't reached until age 20. It wasn't until 2015 that 18-year-olds were considered legal adults. So many of Ohm's members were still not legally able to leave home, sign contracts, or deed property or money without their parents' consent. Parents of some of the Ohm members reported their children to the authorities as runaways and asked for help to bring them home. Over 15% of Ohm's monks and nuns were under the age of 20. What Asahara was doing was, in essence, kidnapping. Parents who had tried to make contact with their children who joined Ohm and were reportedly living at the Mount Fuji facility were continually put off. Those who became monks and nuns had changed their names and now adopted their holy names. When family members called to ask to speak to their children, they'd be told there was no one there who answered to that name, which was the truth. However, the police avoided investigating Ohm for a couple of reasons. One was because they were very wary of doing anything that could be perceived as interfering with the citizens' religious freedom. Secondly, Ohm followers raised such a stink about any government interference that to deal with them was a headache and a hassle, and one the authorities would much rather avoid. Ohm now had enough assets to hire lawyers to threaten legal action for any perceived slight against them and their so-called religious rights. In addition, members would be instructed to launch a campaign of harassment against anyone considered an enemy of the group. This could include politicians, lawyers, judges, townspeople, or anyone else who got in their way. Culturally, conflict between two parties is often conducted in a polite and understated way, and these aggressive tactics used by Asahara and his followers were extremely uncomfortable for their adversaries. Many times, the offended party would just give in to make it stop. Asahara was now using his old bullying techniques he had perfected as a schoolboy. 
but now on a much larger scale. He also bullied his own followers. Those who disobeyed a rule or in any way seemed disloyal were punished. Some members would be beaten. This would help them release negative karma, Asahara taught. Others might be punished by being locked in a tiny room where a television played videos of the guru's preaching 24 hours a day at high volume. Some would be required to endure this for up to five days. Still others were forced to fast for a week while locked in the room. But the harshest punishments were saved for those who had a change of heart and decided to leave Om. One 25-year-old who dared try was brought back and subjected to being dunked in freezing water. This was said to remove the heat from his head or his critical thoughts about the cult. He went into hypothermia and died. This may have been one of the first murders carried out by the cult, but it wouldn't be the last. Another member, a man named Shuji, who had witnessed this murder and the disposal of the man's body by cremation, was traumatized by what he'd seen and tried to leave. Asahara's henchmen first tried to get him to clear his mind by subjecting him to days of sleep deprivation and imprisonment in a small cell. They finally broke his will, and he admitted to doubting the guru's teachings, and even that he had thoughts of killing Asahara after the death of the young follower. When they reported this back to Asahara, he was furious and ordered his henchmen to get rid of Shuji. Om was in danger if the man exposed what he knew, he explained. The men returned to Shuji and attacked him, first trying to strangle him to death, and when that took too long, by breaking his neck. Like the first young man, Shuji was cremated, and what was left of his body was scattered in a nearby field. Not hearing from their son, his parents contacted the local authorities and reported him missing. The police found nothing, and the case of the missing man was closed. Shoko Asahara now had complete control over thousands of followers who lived and or worked at the remote Mount Fuji Ohm facility. Ohm continued to build on the land, and to outsiders, it looked a bit like a concentration camp with sentry towers and barbed wire. Loudspeakers on the property blasted the voice of the guru. The small population who lived in the nearby vicinity were constantly annoyed by this, as well as the construction noise that was never-ending. Every aspect of members' lives was controlled by Ohm. They were fed two meager meals of rice and tasteless vegetables per day. They had mandatory prayer time, classes, and lectures, as well as Ohm assigned work duties. After a long day spent in backbreaking and or boring tasks, they were only allowed to sleep three hours per night in their assigned dorm rooms. They were given very little recreation time, and during that time, they were only allowed to read Ohm-produced books and watch Ohm videos. Children were separated from their parents and raised in squalid conditions with little or no formal education. Those who were born at the facility were not even given names, but simply called Child A, Child B, etc. Children were also put to work in Ohm's kitchen or given other work duties. Older children would become the enforcers over the younger ones. They learned Asahara's bullying and cruel ways and were praised for treating the others harshly. The worst of the bullies was one of Asahara's own children, his daughter named Reiko. As a teenager, she lived a comfortable life in her father's compound when she wasn't serving as her father's proxy at the children's ward of the own facility. She encouraged her favorites to beat the other children with sticks 
to release their bad karma. She once made a child dip his fingers in acid and shrugged it off as an experiment. She was her father's favorite and was considered to be his successor as Ohm's leader. All members were required to wear an electrode cap on their heads at all times. The cap was made up of straps covered with electrodes and wires and was affixed tightly to their heads. Picture a sort of jockstrap-looking thing with conductors placed on the elastic bands with wire sticking out. These electrode caps, called PSIs, or Perfect Salvation Initiation, would deliver six volts of electricity to the wearer's scalp. Asahara claimed it would help followers reach enlightenment by synchronizing their brain waves with his. Children were not exempt, but their PSIs delivered a lower voltage, three volts. They were punished if they removed these caps. As ludicrous and perhaps cruel as these devices sound, the PSIs brought in millions of dollars for the cult. Monks and nuns who were full-time devotees of Ohm received them for free, but others could rent them for about $7,000 per month. Those with access to more capital could purchase them for tens of thousands of dollars. They sold like hotcakes. In 1991, Ohm Supreme Truth purchased a building in the picturesque and ancient town of Matsumoto, about three hours away from Tokyo. It had been purchased under the name of a food processing company, and the owner was told it would serve as its new processing plant. Not long after, the truth was discovered. It had been purchased under the name of an Ohm shell company and was being built to house another Ohm branch. The owner filed a lawsuit to invalidate the sale. While the legal wranglings were happening at the local level, Ohm members began to harass and threaten the owner and even the townspeople who stood in support of kicking the cult out of their neighborhood. Ohm continued to build their facility and completed it in late 1992. Asahara gave more ominous sermons to condemn the local government for daring to challenge his supremeness. The Matsumoto land trial concluded in May of 1994. The judges were set to give the ruling in two months' time but Ohm lawyers told Asahara that he would most likely lose the case. Asahara wasn't about to let this happen and called his senior ministers to a meeting. Hideo Murai, the Minister of Science and Technology for Ohm, was enlisted to set a plan in motion to take out the judges so they wouldn't be able to enter the ruling. On Monday, June 27, 1994, a large refrigerated semi-truck rolled into downtown Matsumoto near 10 p.m. For months, Mirai and his team had been working in Ohm's chemical labs to produce the nerve agent sarin. The truck now carried 44 pounds of the deadly liquid. The container holding the sarin was bolted to the truck's platform and connected to an electric heater that ran on 30 industrial batteries. The contraption would then drip sarin onto the heater, where it would become vapor. The gas would then be blown out of the truck by a fan system through a small window. The gas was supposed to be fanned towards the court building, where the three judges would be at work. It was quite a risky plan, and as you might imagine, it did not go as expected. The truck took much longer to reach Matsumoto than they'd estimated, due to the weight of the batteries it was hauling. By the time it pulled into town, the judges had already left work for the day. Mirai now quickly came up with Plan B. He would position the truck to spread the gas towards a building in town, where the judges resided. Of course, there were also nearby residences and apartment buildings with civilians living inside. But 
No matter, Mariah thought, it could not be avoided. The parked truck began releasing the gas at about half past ten in the evening. The men in the truck donned homemade gas masks and also carried syringes with a sarin antidote in case of exposure. After a few minutes of releasing the toxic gas, the truck drove away. Seven residents of Matsumoto died a horrible death from toxic gas poisoning that night. Others became gravely ill. One woman suffered brain damage and lapsed into a coma from which she would not emerge. Her husband was considered a prime suspect of the poisoning for months. Government officials also suspected North Koreans to be responsible for the attack and took the investigation in that direction. But the attack did serve Ohm's evil goal. The judges, while they did not die, were too ill to go to court. As a result, the ruling in the land trial was postponed indefinitely. Mariah and his team were praised by Asahara for the great job they performed. But all the chemical preparations at the Ohm facility led to an accident two weeks after the attack at Matsumoto. There was a chemical reaction in the lab that led to a terrible smell as chlorine leaked from a storage container. When it came in contact with the moisture in the air, it turned into hydrochloric acid. Ohm workers and others in the facility began to choke and cough and fell violently ill. Residents in the neighboring community also became ill and called the authorities. The next day, police and fire investigators came to inspect the Ohm lab. They found several tanks labeled with descriptions like caustic soda and sulfuric acid. But before they could inspect any further, guards who were Ohm members blocked their approach and accused them of trespassing on private property. They said they were not responsible for whatever had made the townspeople ill. They had been ill, too, and were also the victims. Not wanting to incur the wrath of the bullying cult members, the investigators left. But as investigations continued into the Matsumoto attack, a connection was made between it and the cult. In January 1995, a major Japanese news source reported that soil samples taken by police near the area where Ohm's chemical lab was located and where the leak occurred were found to contain a compound that could have resulted from sarin being produced. It was also reported that the chemical could have been produced within days of the Matsumoto attack. The Ohm spokespeople tried to deflect the blame they felt was being directed their way. They held a press conference accusing Japan's state authorities of spraying their facility to wipe them out. They said they then blamed Ohm when this was discovered. It was all religious persecution by the government, they cried. They then filed lawsuits against media outlets for reporting on, quote, the false claims about them. However, the police continued their plans to investigate the cult for the deadly attack the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department made plans for a large simultaneous raid on all of Ohm's facilities. The raids were scheduled for as early as March 20th. It is believed that Asahara was tipped off about the coming raids by a loyal follower on the inside. He then prepared his strike team for their biggest attack ever. Siche Endo, Ohm's biological warfare expert, worked alongside Hideo Murai to synthesize enough sarin to pull off the Tokyo subway attack before the raids could take place. Their goal was to send five hand-picked followers to enter the subway and release enough sarin to waft through the center of the city. Tokyo Police Department and other government offices were located there, and they aimed to kill as many government members as possible. This would, in effect, shut down the government, 
thus exacting revenge against their oppressors and averting the raid. While Asahara still preached about the coming world war that would lead to the final apocalyptic showdown, where Ohm alone would emerge victorious, only the most deluded of his cult members could have continued to believe this. Asahara and his ministers had to know that they would most certainly be suspected after the sarin attack took place. No, it had to be that Shoko Asahara was using his loyal followers to carry out his personal revenge plot to prove to the government, and perhaps to himself, that he was indeed powerful. In the end, 12 people died, 54 were seriously injured, and almost a thousand more were affected by the sarin gas released on the Tokyo subway on March 20, 1995. Fortunately, for as much time, effort, and money Asahara put towards his chemical and biological weapons programs, most were a failure, and the Tokyo attack was much less effective than he had hoped. As you'd suspect, massive raids took place on Ohm's facilities two days after the attack. The Tokyo police were now on the hunt for cult members who were complicit in the mass murder. At dawn, over 1,000 officers in riot gear and suits to protect them against chemical warfare burst into the buildings of Ohm's Supreme Truth. Scores more officers were dispatched to Ohm branch offices across Japan. Some of the raids were televised live, and the public watched as police began to uncover and carry away chemical stockpiles. Over 200 types of chemicals in massive quantities were found at the Mount Fuji Ohm facility buildings, enough to produce enough sarin and other chemical and biological weapons to wipe out the entire city. Even more chilling discoveries were made on the property. There was a hospital on the grounds that was fully stocked with mind-altering drugs. There was a building that served as Ohm's financial center, where almost $8 million in cash and 22 pounds of gold was found. And then there were the people. In one building, several cult members who were being punished were found locked away, starving and close to death. A few were in critical condition and taken away by ambulance. They found other members locked in containers outside of the buildings who were barely alive. Next, they found the children. Fifty-three children were taken into protective custody. They were dirty and malnourished. Many were photographed being put onto police buses, still with the electrode caps strapped to their heads. Finally, they found the bodies and the remains of those who had been murdered by the cult. They only found the bones of a couple of victims, but also found the instruments that had allowed the cult to cremate the bodies of their victims. A microwave generator and 80 blackened drums were discovered. These were believed to have been used for cremations. Over 20 murders were suspected to have been carried out by the cult, but none of the bodies were ever found. Only four cult members were arrested in the first raids, and only for illegal confinement. Shoko Asahara had gotten away, disappeared into the night. But four days after the attack, he appeared on a self-made video claiming that he and his followers were innocent of the subway attack. He himself was sick, as were over half of his pupils, he claimed. He tried one final time to deflect blame. He believed that he and his people had been sprayed with sarin and mustard gas by the U.S. government. All across Japan, citizens watching on television said, yeah, right, or words to that effect in Japanese. However, the Japanese police were very careful not to place blame on the cult without proper evidence to prove Ohm was responsible. It wasn't until weeks later that they finally announced to the public 
that Ohm had been directly linked to the subway attack. They had warrants for at least a half a dozen men who had participated in the mass murder. But before the arrest could happen, the chief of the National Police Agency, Takaji Kunumatsu, who was the chief investigator on the case, was gunned down in broad daylight in front of his home. A sniper shot him four times. Miraculously, he survived. Later that day, an anonymous call was made to a Tokyo television station, threatening that more would die if the investigation into Ohm was not called off. Arrests began in April after a manhunt for the suspected subway attackers and their accomplices. Dr. Aikuyu Hayashi and his getaway driver on the day of the subway attack were arrested. They were followed by Kenichi Hiroshi and his driver. Toru Toyoda and Masato Yokoyama, the third and fourth attackers, were also arrested. Yasuo Killer Hayashi went on the run and hid out for almost two years before being captured and arrested 2,000 miles away from Tokyo. Shoko Asahara was last seen in public on March 3rd, more than two weeks before the attack. He was suspected of trying to flee to Moscow, but the stakeout at the airport, after the police were tipped off, came up empty. On May 16, 1995, two months after the subway attack, police and riot gear descended on another raid at the Ohm compound near Mount Fuji. They had continued to search the many basements and hidden spaces of the buildings on the vast property. Now they received a tip that there still might be more to find at Building 6. Television crews and reporters watched in anticipation, as they had for the last two months of raids. Would this one pay off? About 9.30 a.m., police found a small chamber hidden between the second and third floors of Building 6. A hatch door was pried open. There they found a figure sitting cross-legged in the darkness. He was wearing a purple robe and white pants. He was dirty, and his beard was greasy and disheveled. Are you Asahara? An officer asked him. Yes, I am the guru, the man replied. He was led out of the building past a crowd of reporters and cameras and into a police van. He was transported to the Tokyo jail, with cameras following and recording his capture from the ground and the air. It was Japan's equivalent of the OJ White Bronco chase. When questioned by police, Asahara would admit to nothing. How could I, a blind man, have possibly done such a thing, he responded. The attackers and Asahara were tried, and all were found guilty. Hiroshi, Toyoda, Yokoyama, and Killer Hayashi were all sentenced to death by hanging. Dr. Aikuyo Hayashi was sentenced to life in prison due to his cooperation during the police investigation. Shoko Asahara refused to speak at all during the course of his trial. His lawyer tried to make a case for mental illness, but the judge didn't buy it. Asahara was sentenced to death by hanging in 2009. His execution was set, but was then postponed in 2012 when other members of Om Shinriko, who were also suspected to have participated in murders, were finally arrested. They had been fugitive for years, and now that they could be brought before the court and tried for their crimes, Japan's justice system required that the other cult members not be put to death should they need to be called as witnesses. As of 2018, they are all still awaiting execution. Aum was stripped of its status as a religious organization soon after the arrest and his assets were seized. 
In total, 189 cult members were indicted for various crimes, from murder to kidnapping and fraud. Thirteen members were sentenced to death, five to life in prison, and 80 others were given prison sentences of various lengths. The still-loyal members reorganized under the name LF and is reported to still have about 2,100 members worldwide. They still operate businesses, including yoga schools, under the LF name, and they are often boycotted and picketed by citizens who oppose them. Japan has enacted tighter controls and laws on toxic agents and more closely monitors religious groups for cult-like activity and human rights violations to protect Japanese citizens. In 2005, members of the Aleph organization were reported to be continuing some of Asahara's practices. One member was killed during a ritual when he was submerged in scalding hot water, or what they called thermotherapy. A female member died after being beaten with a bamboo sword to release her bad karma. A journalist who has been reporting on Ohm since the mid-90s was asked why its members continue to practice Asahara's teachings a decade after their leader was imprisoned for murder. She answered, A short explanation for why they stay in the cult is because they have been told that they will go to hell if they leave. The cult controls their minds and makes them feel superior to ordinary people, and that makes it easier to stay with their own kind. And in my opinion, the fact that their leader still claims to be innocent and that he's being persecuted for his beliefs makes them cling to their self-righteous dogma even that much more strongly. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. You can support the show on Patreon and get some merch, bonus episodes, and more at patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. Don't forget to leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps others to find the show, and I appreciate it tremendously. Thanks. I want to share a couple of great books you might want to check out. The first is The Cult at the End of the World, The Terrifying Story of the Ohm Doomsday Cult by David Kaplan and Andrew Marshall. It was published the year after the Tokyo subway attack, so it doesn't include the outcome of the trials, but it's a fascinating and in-depth look at Shoko Asahara and Ohm's supreme truth. The second is Underground, The Tokyo Gas Attack and the Japanese Psyche by the wonderful writer and novelist Haruku Murakami. In it, he includes first-person accounts of the attack from survivors, as well as interviews with the perpetrators and family members of the victims. And even better, it's available on Audible. What? You don't have an Audible subscription? Well, you can have one on me. You can get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial by going to audibletrial.com slash onceuponacrime. You're welcome. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.